Good morning, everybody. How are you? Woo! There you go. Much better. So, pretty excited about VBS, like Pastor Doug shared. Be, be uh, keeping that in prayer, please, all week. You know, what a time to breathe truth um, into young uh, men and women, young ki- children, right? Um, perfect time. Perfect time. So just keep that in prayer. Um, I was told that at a certain angle with the backdrop that it actually looks like I'm walking on water. But I assure you, I am not. I don't want to get my, my shoes wet. That was a joke. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, happy Father's Day to all you dads, fathers, father figures. Yes. A um, couple things. This is just the way I'm wired, right? So three Ps when I was thinking about dads, and I want to thank you, dads, um, for your provision, for your families, um, for those inside this church. Thank you for being incredible providers. We're very grateful. Um, thank you for your protection that you provide for your families and for those at the church. And with your prayers, protecting the young ones that will be here all week. Just be praying for that. So we thank you for your protection as well as fathers. And then just the ways as men that you participate in this church, being very Christ-like in how you engage um, your responsibility as men in this church, I want to thank you. It's, uh, it's just an, an especially impressive thing that happens in this church, like many others, but just the way the men participate. So I want to say thank you um, for that as well. Yeah. Um, I must warn you... <laughs> I love warning. I got a new Bible. Oftentimes when I stick my Bible up, people say, you know, I, that's really impressive duct tape on your Bible. Um, but I finally, I've been wanting to get a new one for a long time. So isn't this thing huge? Well, it's because I got not the large print. It's called the giant print. <laughs> it has nothing to do with my, my age. I can assure you of that. But just to verify, look at this thing. You can read it from there. Yeah, right? Aren't you jealous? No? So if I, if I seem especially inspired this morning, it's, it's all the Bible's fault. I take no responsibility. Pretty excited. We are in Mark chapter 8. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to finish chapter 8, which will make us uh, halfway through the book of Mark. It has 16 chapters. We will be done with chapter 8 uh, this morning. So we're going to start or pick up in Mark chapter 8, verses 22, until the end of chapter 8, which is verse 38. So let's read, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him, to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but I see them like trees walking around. And then again, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently, and the man was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent uh, him to his home and saying to him, Do not even enter the village. Verse 27, our next stanza. There's four stanzas this morning. This is our second stanza. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the, village, um, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples. And he said this, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others, 
one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Our third stanza, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly to them. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Verse 34, our fourth stanza. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he, she must deny himself, herself, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. God, so grateful to be here today. So grateful for what you've allowed us to do this week with VBS. Pray, Lord, that you would move in mighty ways in the hearts and minds of these young people. Thank you for all those that contribute to serve in some capacity, knowing, Lord, that the work that they do is for eternity and it's never wasted. We're so grateful. Lord, we pray and we invite you here that you would indeed have your way with us this morning. Unleash your Holy Spirit upon us and within us that we can uh, embrace that whatever you have for us individually and collectively as a church. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. So here's our outline for this morning. The four stanzas that we talked about. The first stanza is the blind Bethsaida, verses 23 through 26. And then an accurate analysis of when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, Peter says, on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. So it's accurate. They did well there. But then they didn't do so well following. And so Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus righteously rebukes Peter back in verses 31, 32, and 33. And then he follows up at the end of... Um, Chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, a disciple's directives, what it means to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. We'll keep that up as you write, continue to write uh, that down. So let's hit the first stanza, those first few verses, the blind Bethsaida in Mark 8, 22 through 26. Let's read that again. So they come to Bethsaida and, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and they implore him to touch him. And so he takes the man by the hand, he takes him outside of the village and he spits on his eyes and he lays his hands on him and asks him if he can see anything. And he says, I do, but I, they seem like trees. So he's not seeing clearly. And so again, Jesus lays his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and at that moment was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he tells him not to go back into the village Physical blindness was actually quite common in Bible times in that area, uh, what we call the ancient Near East, where the Bible uh, times were set in the New Testament. And mistreatment of a blind person was forbidden by God. Uh, for example, the law prohibited uh, the giving 
of misleading directions to a blind person. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 27. It also prohibited doing anything to, co- uh, to cause a blind person to stumble. You can read about that in Leviticus 19. And so Jesus' uh, healing ministry of bringing sight to the blind um, was, a, was a fulfillment of prophecy. So that's one of the reasons why he heals this man, not just out of compassion, but his healing ministry of bringing sight to the blind was a fulfillment of prophecy. One of many verses, Isaiah 35.5, let's look at that. Isaiah 35.5, one of many, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. One of the things that the Messiah will do will, is to open the eyes of the blind and to open the ears of the deaf. And a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dave, when he was preaching in Mark chapter 7, went over the healing of the deaf man in Decapolis. His ability to restore sight was one of the proofs that was given to John the Baptist that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And Matthew 11 talks about that. When John, while he was in prison, heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you, Jesus, are you the expected one, the Messiah? Or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus said, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So restoring sight was part of his fulfillment of prophecy, but it also was used symbolically in Scripture. Being blind was used as a symbol in Scripture of A, human sin, and B, of the human inability or the human refusal to realize the truth and the importance of God and the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so the restoration of sight can therefore be treated as a symbol of coming to faith. The man that Jesus was healing at first saw distorted images, people who looked like trees that were walking around. Only after a second touch from Jesus was he able to see clearly. And so that's indicative of how God removes blindness in our lives periodically over time, in stages, in phases. And some of us give up on that process where God is showing things to us, he's revealing things to us, and we don't stick around for that next touch. We don't stay at his feet and have him touch us again, and we give up. Some of us need to stick around longer for the next touch from our Lord. How many of us in this room can attest to the fact that the removal of our blindness has been gradual? Please raise your hand. Did you come to know Jesus and everything was clear? It's still becoming clear, isn't it? What a blessing. And we need to stick around for that touch from Jesus and stick around for that next touch and stick around for that next touch. Similarly, as we will see in our text as it unfolds for today, the disciples begin to see that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. That's what they say in our verses today. But their understanding of what it meant to be Messiah was badly distorted. Just like this man that was being healed, his initial touch, it was still distorted. Proverbs, this is a great, great uh, verse, uh, two verses in Proverbs 4, 18 and 19. Read this carefully. The path 
of the righteous. When we give our lives to Christ and we begin a life of righteousness, the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn. And it will shine brighter and brighter until the full day. Which means you go to see Jesus or He comes back to get you. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Our path of righteousness or the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that will shine brighter and brighter. And so we stick with Jesus and we ask for another touch and we say, touch me again and again and again. Do you and I realize and trust that your faithfulness, our faithfulness will indeed lead to a path of righteousness that shines brighter and brighter if we do not grow weary? Take an assessment perhaps of your path then, when you first came to know the Lord, and now, how much more clearly you see, how much less blind you are. Far too often in this process, we give up. We don't see as we ought to see, and we give up. And we need to stay at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, touch me again. Touch me again. Far too often we give up on ourselves and others. Right? And so then we judge and we become critical and we, be, we become harsh with people. But their blindness is being removed as well. And we need to be patient with people. And so instead of being critical, we need to be praying for them. Don't give up on yourself and don't give up on others. We need to pray for one another in that regard. I want you to compare a couple things. In our text and this first stanza, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. Let's just, so let's look at this real quickly. They come to Bethsaida, because these verses are almost identical to what happened to the deaf man in chapter 7. Look at this. They come, they bring him uh, to Jesus, they implore Jesus to touch him. He takes him out, and he spits on him and asks him if he sees anything. Look at chapter 7, verses 32 and 33. They brought to him one who was deaf, they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus takes him out and he spits on him. I mean, almost identical. And smack dab in the middle of a deaf person and a blind person was the admonition that we went over last week in Mark chapter um, 8, verses 14 through 21. If you remember this, when they had uh, gotten in the boat and they, they, they forgot that they had only had one loaf and Jesus warns them to beware of the leaven, and they think he's talking about bread, and so he essentially rebukes them, right? And the key there is verse 18. So in the middle of this healing of a deaf person, in the middle of this healing of a blind person, is verse 18, the admonition saying, Church, my people, my followers, my disciples, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And so what Jesus is doing, he's putting himself right in the center of that reality to say, I am the one that helps you, church, to hear what I'm saying to you and for you to see who I am in your life as the Messiah, as your Savior, as the one that leads you into truth and righteousness. And so Jesus helps us to hear better. He helps us to see better. He's not just performing miracles. He's establishing His relationship with us as His disciples to help us hear and see better. Can I get an amen? I think it's powerful. So that's our first stanza. Our second stanza, the next couple of verses, what we call number, our second stanza, an accurate analysis. Let's read 27 through 30. Jesus went out along with his disciples on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? 
And they told him, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter rightfully says, on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ. Well done, Peter. And he warned them to tell no one about him. A massive shift in curriculum is going to take place in the next stanza. Jesus is going to shift gears. He's ready to teach them the next uh, curriculum, if you will. So it makes sense that Jesus, before he moves to the next curriculum, what does he do? He's going to give them a what? A test. We love tests, don't we? And that's what Jesus does. Imagine if Jesus were to give you a test today. If Jesus were to give you a test today, would that make you nervous? <laughs> Should it? It's a good question for us. What would you not want Jesus to ask you in this test? You know, we all, we've all been there, right? Where it's like, you know, test time, and you go, man, if, I, if Jesus asked me about this stuff, this stuff I know, but this stuff over here, boy, I hope Jesus doesn't ask me about this stuff over here because I don't really know that stuff as well as I know this stuff over here, right? We've all been there. What would you not want him to ask you, church? What category or subject matter of your life would perhaps lead to a failing or a poor or bad grade? I'll be honest with you, and I'm getting better. I'm getting so much better over the years, but i still got a long way to go. My poor grade, I gave myself a C-plus last night, but I, it might be a B-minus, but that's not really much of an upgrade. But my area is prayer, and I'm getting better at it. And I'm so thankful that Doug and Kathy Renault lead so many of us and show us what it means to be people of prayer. I'm getting better at prayer. But I'm not where I should be because it's just it's, it's so easy to just depend on ourselves and forget about God and to carve that time to just stop what I'm doing and just say, Lord, I surrender. It's so hard for us to, to surrender. I'm getting better. But that's an area where I need some help still. We accept. Many of us have kids, have had kids, or we've been kids, right? And we accept the fact that there's tests in school and we think nothing of it, do we? We expect that. We need to know that our children are progressing, that they're maturing, that they're learning the curriculum before they go to the next level, right? Do we think anything bad about those tests and those quizzes and that assessment of knowledge? Some of us might actually think it's bad, right? Right, Rob? Yeah, <laughs> you don't count. Anyway, you get what I'm saying, right? Imagine if we did that in the church. We fully accept it in, in the secular thing called education. Shouldn't we much more? Be willing to be tested about our knowledge and our progression and our maturity to make sure that we're maturing to the next level? What would that look like in the church if I gave you a test and you failed? I'd stick you in children's ministry. I guess. I don't know. Or give you a time out. It's interesting, right? It's an interesting concept. If we had tests here at, as a church, hmm, I think it's fun to think about that. So Jesus wants or needs with his disciples to shift to the next curriculum. And it appears in his test, in our verses 27 through 30, this stanza, it appears there's only two questions, and they're two short answer questions. Okay, what's the first question? Who do people say that I am? And they respond brilliantly. They say John the Baptist, they say Elijah, or one of the prophets. Check, you did good. And then he asks the second question. Who do you say that I am? And they answer perfectly, you are the Christ. Two for two, 100%, ready for the next curriculum, right? You with me? 
I love the second question because it adds the word but at the beginning. There's much to be said about Jesus, which was in that first question. There's much to be said about Jesus, but who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus in your life? Yes, a lot of things are said about Jesus, but Kathy, who does Jesus, who is Jesus in your life? Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? There's not a more important question that any one of us can ask. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking you. How accurate would your assessment of Jesus be? It's all good and wonderful and warm and fuzzy to say good things about our Lord, for sure. They say in that first question, John the Baptist, that's good. Elijah, that's good. One of the prophets, that's good. Not one bad person is listed in that list. All good people are listed in that first question. But it's quite another thing to say accurate things about our Lord. It's not enough to say good things about our Lord. It's imperative that we say accurate things about our Lord. And this is one of the ways that we do that. Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, reveals that they now, currently, in this testing moment, recognize Him as the Messiah. Do you say good things about our Lord? You probably do. But do you say accurate things about our Lord? I hope so. Turn to John 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 6, 66 through 69. So Peter has, or uh, Jesus has a conversation, and it picks up at 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with Jesus anymore. Hmm. And so Jesus looks to the 12 and he says, You do not want to go away also, do you? Wow. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where are we going to go? You have words of eternal life. Not just you're the Messiah, but your word leads to eternal life. They go together. We have believed and have come to know. It was a gradual process that you are the Holy One of God. We need to stick around for another touch and another touch and another touch so that you and I can come to know who Jesus is and how He wants to work in our lives. Our third stanza, verses 31, 32, and 33, a righteous rebuke. Let's read those verses quickly. He began to teach them, right? So this is the new teaching. This is the new curriculum. That word begin means it's a brand new beginning. He began to teach them new stuff, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating this matter plainly, and Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, Peter. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So this is the new curriculum this is the next level great you know that i'm the christ guess what's coming for me next hardship and so what that means as followers is that's probably what's coming for us as well so jesus begins this new block of teaching this new block of learning immediately after the exam he just gave them in the stanza before no rest 
No cause for celebration that they passed their exam in the previous verses. No spring break. No memo circulating around the office that everybody passed the test. We're having a luncheon. No certificate of merit. No gift card to Target. Why? Because the enemy's crafty. And the minute we take our foot off the gas, the enemy pounces. And so the magic word that we need to start embracing is next. God teaches us something, we pass the test and we say next, and He teaches us the next thing and we pass that test and God says next, and then we do it again and again and again and again. Because God has so much to teach us and we have so much to learn and what it means to follow our Lord and Savior. And I think and I hope and I pray that we will begin to embrace the word next. That excites me. It just does. So what's this new curriculum? Well, we just read it. Let's read it again. Verse 31. This is what he began to teach them. That I, Jesus, the Son of Man, must suffer many things. I must be rejected by these three people, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. Right? Suffer, rejected, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. How initially, just think this, don't answer, but just, how does that initially grab you when you read that new curriculum in verse 31? Good news or bad news? Just think about that. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And this is the first of three occurrences where Mark shows us, or where Jesus teaches us, and Mark shows us, this curriculum to his disciples. Check this out. So we have it here in chapter 8. We're going to see it again in chapter 9 and again in chapter 10. Look at 9, verses 30, 31, and 32. One chapter later, Jesus does the exact same thing. From there they went, verse 39, verse 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know about it. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is going to be delivered. And they're going to kill him. And when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. And then look in chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road, going to Jerusalem. Jesus was ahead of them. They were amazed, and they followed and were fearful. And He took the twelve, and He began to teach them or tell them what was going to happen. Behold, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I, the Son of Man, will be delivered to the priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Me to death and hand Me over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him, and three days later, He will rise again. If you go back to Mark chapter 8, in verse 32, it says that Jesus stated this matter plainly. Do you see that? So we see it three times in Mark 8 and Mark 9 and Mark 10 that bad things are going to happen to me. And he states the matter plainly. And what that means is not simply or easy to understand. It means he states it with boldness and with confidence and with a willingness to undertake an activity that involves risk or danger. In other words, he's like saying, bring it on. Matter-of-factly, this is what I'm called to do. And as followers of Christ, we hopefully will begin to walk and speak and talk the same way, very plainly. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. And I am willing with boldness and confidence to undertake in things that involve risk or danger, for that is what it means to be a follower of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Remember a few minutes ago, I asked you how this new curriculum grabbed you initially. 
that he was going to be rejected and killed. And uh, what was the other word that I said? Right? Rejected and killed and suffer. How did that initially grab you? However it grabbed you, here's the key. And all three of those occurrences where Jesus taught them about his upcoming death and resurrection, what did he mention in all three of those? Do you guys remember? In Mark 8, in Mark 9, in Mark 10. Bad things are going to happen, but I will rise again on the third day. Victory. Power. And so when we initially read them, like, oh, Jesus is going to die. He's like, but I will rise again on the third day. And Peter doesn't see that. He sees the bad stuff. And sometimes we do that. It's like, I don't want all that suffering and killing and rejection stuff. No, but I will rise again on the third day. Oh, I missed that part. It's kind of imperative, right? He will and did rise again. But somehow Peter misses that or perhaps wants no part of it. Hmm. So Peter rebukes Jesus. And of course, Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter, like us, perhaps, shows more love than discretion. We do a lot of things out of love, but we lack discretion. And that's what Peter did. He's being very loving. And I love that about him. But he's lacking discretion. Sometimes it happens in our lives, doesn't it? Peter's interests and his concerns seem innocent enough, perhaps even good, but they are rebuked because they fail when compared to the Lord's interests and the Lord's concerns, right? Peter's interests and concerns concerns seem innocent enough, but they're rebuked because they fail when compared to God's interests and God's concerns. That's just the way life is, isn't it? But God has great things for us. That's what's amazing about it. What Christ was about to do, what Christ was about to do when he teaches us three times, I must die, but I will rise again. I must die, but I will rise again. I must die, but I will rise again. Why? It was necessary for three things. The glory of God, the destruction of Satan, and the salvation of God. Of man. How much of our life feeds into one of those three purposes? How much of your life and my life is for the glory of God, for the destruction of Satan, and the salvation of man? Be praying for VBS this week. It's a great way to contribute to the salvation of man and the destruction of Satan and the glory of God. Be in prayer for those kids. Be in prayer for those volunteers. Amen? Jesus tells Peter that he was setting his mind on man's interests, not God's. Anybody but me guilty of that once in a while? Sure, just squeeze it up a little high, right? I love how New King James Version and the NIV puts this verse about, uh, verse 33, he says, you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. The New King James says, for you are not mindful of the things of God. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. How does that wear for you? They both kind of say the same thing. Are you mindful? Are we mindful of the things of God? Do we have in mind the things that concern God or not? What a great question for us to ask of ourselves. How much of man's interests are of interest to God? How much of our interests are of interest to God? God loves us. He cares for us. He wants great things for us. Don't get me wrong. 
What goals and objectives and life purposes do you and I think we possess that could possibly be bigger, better, and more important than those of our Lord? On some level, we are in that way like Satan. And that's what Jesus is saying. The intense charge when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, does not suggest that Peter is possessed by Satan, but that he has adopted the enemy's way of thinking. Our plans might as well be endorsed by the ruler of darkness when they are not God's plans. You get that? Peter clearly sees Jesus for who he is, but he has no clue how he is working and where Jesus' interests truly lie. By way of comparison, keep in mind that Satan clearly sees Jesus for who he is. Seeing Jesus for who He is is a big deal, but it's not where it stops. How He works and what He does and submitting to that, it gets tricky, doesn't it? And that's our battle. And that's our joy. And Jesus walks us through that. And so we stay at His feet and we're blind and we say, touch me again. Lord, touch me again. Oh, Lord, touch me again. Okay, Lord, now and touch me again. I'm starting to see more clearly, Lord, touch me again. And so that's why that miracle is there to show us that Jesus continues to reveal who he is and how he works. So Peter, a few verses ago, confesses that he's the Christ, and a few verses later, he rebukes him. It's just another example of how the disciples at that moment still did not see clearly. Their sight was becoming gradual. Like us, far too often the disciples had a way of calling Jesus Lord and then telling him what kind of Lord he needed to be. Right? We're all guilty of that. Our last stanza, stanza number four, a disciple's directives. Verses 34 through 38. So he summoned the crowd with his disciples. And he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, Anyone, you want to come after me? You must deny himself. He must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory. Jesus clarifies in these verses his audience for the most important message we could ever hear. If you want to come after me, that's what he says, right? If anyone, this is his audience. He summons the crowd and his disciples. He's saying, whether you're following me now or you're not following me now, no difference. If you want to come after me, you want to be my disciple, this is what you must do. Jesus said in John 14:6, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if we want to be in right standing with our God, that's why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, because you might say, well, why do we want to follow you? Because I'm the only way to get to my dad. So that's who I am. Recognize me for who I am. So that's the who part. And so now in these verses 34 through 38, Jesus addresses the how part. I'm the who, and now I'm going to tell you the how and so look at the key here is this, at the end of verse, the latter half of 34, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, wants to come after me, desires to come after me, is willing to come after me, he must, 
must. You wish, you must. And then he lists the three things. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And perhaps for some of us, we need to graduate from wishing (laughs) to musting. I don't know how else to say it, right? What a great question to ask. Are you still wishing? Are you starting to, are you start, or did you start musting? Right? You wish to follow after me? You must do these things. And God's never going to ask us and tell us what we must do unless He empowers us to do it. That would be an unjust God, right? So He says, you wish to follow after me? Let me tell you what you must do. We either wish to follow Him or we're going to wish to follow ourselves. And either way, what these verses tell us is we're going to lose something either way. We can lose our life now and gain all of that remains in eternity for us. Or we can gain our life now and lose what He promises us in eternity. We're going to lose something. Just count the cost properly, right? That's what those verses say. Jeremiah 5.31, as we wrap this up, I love this verse. He says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? The three musts of discipleship that are listed here is that you and I must deny yourself. We must deny ourselves. You must take up your cross. And you must follow Jesus. Notice where the responsibility in all three of those lie. You must deny yourself. You must pick up your cross. You must follow Jesus. How responsible are we being in these three areas? Just wrap it up with this. What I call the accounting of it all. Verses 36 and 37. These are all accounting terms. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I think I did this at men's breakfast a few months back. Listen to this. What will it profit you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? What's the answer? Nothing. What profit is there to gain the whole world and lose your soul? The answer, nothing. Verse 37. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Opposite. Everything. You gain nothing by gaining the whole world and losing your soul. You get nothing. But if you had the chance, and you do, every day, what will you give in exchange for your soul? Everything. That's just modeling Christ, because Christ gave everything for us. He gave His very life. I'm going to end there. Let's pray. As the worship team heads up, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And we're going to close in a song. And then our prayer team will be available in the corner here to my left. Happy Father's Day to everybody. So, so, so thankful that you're here with us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We love Your Word. Lord, we just continue to stay at Your feet and ask You for another touch. Lord, we need it so desperately. God, touch us so we can see more clearly today than we did yesterday. Lord, touch us tomorrow so we can see more clearly tomorrow than we do today. Lord, You don't give up on us. May we not leave the feet of You because we need Your touch to see and to hear more clearly 
Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your patience. Thank you that you promise never to leave us nor forsake us. May we stay at your feet. May we learn what it means to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said,